And so it's his name we pray, amen. Amen, you guys can have a seat. Well, guys, happy Easter, everybody. He is risen. It's a good thing. My name is Matt Carter. I'm the pastor of preaching and vision here at the Austin Stone. Thank you for choosing to worship with us today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today, verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Um, If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. I'm going to have the scriptures behind me on the screen. If If you're visiting with us today, we typically go verse by verse through the Bible as a church. And right now we're in the book of Matthew and specifically we're in the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus in the Lord's Prayer is showing us specifically how we're to pray. This is not just cool theology on prayer, but this is how Jesus told us to pray. And so let's look at Matthew chapter six, verse nine. And we'll get there in just a second. But Jesus starts off and he tells us, hey, this is how I want you to address God when you're praying to him. He says, I want you to address him as our father who's in heaven. We're to remember that, yes, he's our heavenly daddy, but he's also our God. He's also our Lord that is above us. And then he tells us the first thing, we talked about this last week, the first thing he tells us to pray is to tell us pray that God's name would be hallowed in our life. That's a word that means exalted or placed first or tops. And so the first thing you're praying is, God, I want your name and your purposes to be exalted in my life. He taught us that because we're aligning, when we do that, we're aligning our hearts with the primary purpose of our lives. So let's read this together, Matthew 6, 9. Jesus says, pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. All right, now we're gonna look at in verse 10 what we're gonna hang out in today. Watch what he says for us to pray next in Matthew 6, 10. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus tells us, okay, first thing you're praying is for the name of God to be exalted or hallowed in your life, and the next thing that you're praying is for God's kingdom to come. And all in the world that means is you're, you're literally saying, God, I want your kingdom to show up in my life and through my life. Now here's the thing, I'm not gonna get into your kingdom come much uh, because we're gonna go into detail of that next week and what that means. But when you're praying, Lord, I want your kingdom to show up in my life, what you're asking and what you're recognizing, listen, is that he is your king and that he is your Lord and that you're asking him to reign in your life. That's what that means. He's your king, he's your Lord, and you're asking him to reign in your life. Now, listen to this carefully. Okay, that prayer, God, I want your name to be exalted. I want your kingdom to come. I want you to reign and be Lord in my life. That is an absolutely critical prayer for you to pray, and here's why. Because the next thing Jesus tells us to pray, and we're gonna look at this today, but the next thing he tells us to pray is, God, I want your will to be done. And what we're gonna see today, church, is that prayer is so difficult to pray that there's absolutely no way you'll ever pray it unless you first recognize that he's your king and he's your Lord and he reigns in your life. Okay, so now, to understand why God, I want your will to be done or thy will be done is such a difficult prayer to pray, you need to understand what it is that you're asking for, what you're praying when you pray that prayer, God, I want your will to be done. Now, it's an interesting prayer when you think about it. Now, why why does Jesus say, that we should pray, God, I want your will to be done because we know that God's sovereign, right? 
He's sovereign. He's on his throne. <clears throat> Which means that, that, that his will, church, is going to happen no matter what. He's God. He's sovereign. And so if God's will is going to happen no matter what, why does Jesus tell us to pray for God's will to happen? Well, here's the answer, okay? It's because when you look at the original language of your will be done, what those words literally mean, and hear this, when you pray, God's, I want your will to be done, what you're literally praying is, God, I don't want what I want, but I want what you want. Okay, that's what God's will be done means. God's will be done equals, God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. And so when you're in your prayer closet, you're praying that, God, I want your name to be exalted. I want you to reign in my life. You're saying, and I also, God, I don't want what I want for my life. God, I want what you want for my life. Now listen carefully, guys. Don't miss this. So this is not a prayer that is enacting God's will when you pray it. Because God's will is going to happen anyway. But what you do when you pray this prayer is it's a prayer where you're surrendering to God's will for your life. And, and, and church, you saying, God, I don't want what I want in my life. God, I want what you want in my life is not easy to do. Especially when you realize the extent of what Jesus is saying that we're to pray. God, I want what you want in my life. <clears throat> All right? And let me show you what I'm talking about. <clears throat> He says in Matthew 6.10, he says, I want your kingdom come. You pray that your will be done. I don't want what I want, I want what you want. And then watch what he says last there. He says, on earth as it is in heaven. That's the extent you're wanting God's will in your life. On earth as it is in heaven. Now don't turn there, but to understand what that means, I want to read to you Psalms 103, verse 19 through 21. This is King David talking. And he says in verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying his voice, obeying, excuse me, obeying the voice of his word. And then verse 21, he says, bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Okay, so King David is speaking, church, about the angels who are in heaven, and what the angels in heaven do is they completely desire and they completely obey every single word that God commands in heaven. And so when you pray, Lord, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, what you're literally praying is God in the same way that the angels in heaven completely and totally and utterly obey your word and every command, that's what I am asking for here in my life. I want to obey your word and I want to want your word in the same way that the angels obey and want your word in heaven. And church, here's the thing. That is one of the most radical most gut-wrenching, most difficult prayers that you will ever pray in your entire life. And here's why I say that. Because if you're a believer here today and I were to ask you the question, do you want God's will in your life? The vast majority of believers would go, sure, absolutely. I want God's will for my life. You see, here's the thing, church. Everybody that's a believer says, yeah, I want God's will for my life until you're will for your life doesn't line up with God's will for your life. 
And Jesus tells us to pray this because he recognizes and he knows that we're gonna have these desires that are sometimes contrary to God's desires in our life. And that's why he says, here's what I want you to pray. God, I want you to reign and rule in my life. And God, I don't want what I want. God, I want what you want. And that's gonna be one of the most difficult prayers that ever comes out of your mouth. And so what I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna make three points about the significance of this prayer and the power of this prayer and why you and I should pray it. And then we're gonna be done today. So here's point number one, if you're taking notes. Point number one is you praying the prayer. God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want is the proof that you want God's name to be hallowed. Okay, you praying this prayer, God, your will be done, that is the proof that you really do want God's name to be exalted in your life. In other words, you can pray all day long. You can pray all day long that you want God's name to be exalted and hallowed in your life, but the proof and the evidence that you really want that is if you're also willing to pray, God, since you're my king, I want you to reign, and I, because you reign, I don't want what I want, I want what you want in my life. For example, if you're in a marriage that is not living up to your expectations and you want out, even though you don't have really a biblical ground for divorce, the words, God, I want your name to be exalted in my life are absolutely meaningless unless you're also willing to pray, God, I don't want what I want for my marriage. God, I want what you want for my marriage. If you're dating and you're a believer and you're tempted to go beyond the biblical standard for sexual purity, you can Come in here and sing for the name of God to be glorified. You can pray all day long that you want the name of God to be exalted in your life, but unless you're willing to pray, God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want for my sexual purity, then you really don't mean for God's name to be glorified in your life. See, the Lord's Prayer, one of the things you're gonna learn, and we're learning here, is the Lord's Prayer is kind of like a chain. One prayer leads to another, and one prayer is critical, and they're all connected. And so you can't pray one without the other. And I can tell you guys countless stories over the years of my time in ministry where people come into this room and they lift their hands to the sky and they sing at the top of their lungs that they want God's name to be glorified and exalted. But when it came right down to it, when they were faced with a choice between what they wanted for their life and what God wanted for their life, they choose what they wanted for their life and they walked away. Praying that prayer, God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want, is the proof, it's the evidence that you desire, that you truly want Jesus' name to be exalted, okay? Now here's point number two. Because Jesus prayed this prayer, because Jesus prayed this prayer, we're gonna see that he was able to walk in complete obedience to God, even to the point of going to the cross. Okay, what we're gonna see here in just a second is is in so many ways, this prayer was what enabled Jesus to walk in obedience even to the point of the cross. Now here's the thing, guys. I've been studying the Bible a really long time. And I am 100% convinced that Jesus would have never walked to the cross had he not been willing to pray this prayer. God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. Okay, there there, there was, show you what I'm talking about. There was a series of, of battles between Satan and Jesus. 
that ultimately led to the cross of Jesus Christ. And in so many ways, that prayer, God, your will be done, was ultimately what won the battle over Satan. Okay, let me, let me give you one example of, of those battles. <clears throat> After Jesus was baptized, the scripture says that as soon as he came up, up from the water, the spirit led him into the wilderness, and, and Satan followed Jesus into the wilderness, and the scripture says that, he, that Satan immediately began to tempt Jesus. Now, why is Satan following Jesus into the wilderness and tempting him? What, what is Satan trying to do? And here's the answer. Satan is trying to get Jesus to sin. He's trying to get Jesus to sin. Okay, here's the thing. That's what Satan does when he tempts you. He's trying to get you to sin, and he's trying to get you to disobey God. And if he can get you to sin, and he can get you to disobey God, that's a big victory. But Satan also knows that if he can get Jesus to sin, that that's an infinitely bigger victory. Okay, now, don't shout it out, but theological question for you. Why does Satan want Jesus to sin? Like, why, why is it such a massive spiritual victory if Satan can get Jesus to sin? Okay, here's the answer, listen. That in order for Jesus to be qualified to die on the cross as a substitute and as a payment for your sinfulness and my sinfulness, Jesus had to be completely sinless. Okay, if Jesus was completely sinless when he died and walked to the cross, then he would be a perfect substitute for us who are sinners so that we can receive his righteousness and when we die, we get to go to heaven. And Satan knew that, Satan knew that. Satan learned that all the way back in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter three. After Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they sinned, God came up to Satan and said, Satan, here's what's gonna happen. There's gonna be a baby that's gonna be born one day. He's gonna be born of a virgin. He's gonna grow up, he's gonna live a perfect life and that baby that grew up to a man that lived a perfect life is gonna destroy you. And Satan knew that that was going to be Jesus. And so from that moment in Genesis chapter three, Satan was looking for the birth of Christ. From that moment, Satan was looking for the birth of this Christ who would ultimately destroy him. But centuries went by and nothing happened. More centuries went by, no birth. More centuries went by, it was just silence. And maybe Satan was thinking, you know, maybe God forgot. Maybe, maybe God just gave up. But then one night, one cold night, about 2,000 years ago, I would imagine that some demons came up to Satan and said, hey, Satan, we were out in a field near the city of David and Satan, we heard angels singing. And they were singing and shouting to these shepherds about how today in the city of David, there had been born for them a savior. And then they started glorifying God and saying peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Boss, we think he's been born. And from that moment forward, from that moment forward, <clears throat> Satan's number one goal in his life is to get Jesus to sin because Satan knows that if Jesus sins, Satan wins. And so in the desert, three different times, Satan is desperately 
going to try to get Jesus to sin. And the first temptations, two rather, first two temptations, he throws at Jesus. They don't work. Jesus quotes scripture, brushes them off. It doesn't work. But in this third and final temptation, Satan is going to throw the kitchen sink at Jesus. He's going to throw the biggest temptation at Jesus that I think Jesus ever faces in his entire life. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. It says, and the devil took him, that's Jesus, to a very tall mountain, <clears throat> excuse me, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now watch what the scripture says next, and you're going to see why this is arguably one of the greatest temptations Jesus ever experienced. In Matthew 4, 9, and he said to him, and, and Satan said to Jesus, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And so Satan takes Jesus on this high, high mountain, and the scripture says that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. That was probably a vision. And here's what that means, is he showed him all the past, all the present, all the future kingdoms of the world. And he not only showed him kingdoms, but he showed him people. He showed him all the past, all the present, and all the future peoples of the world. You are probably in that vision. And then Satan looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, see all the people of the world. See all those people. Jesus, aren't they the reason that you came to this planet in the first place? Jesus, they're the reason that you came here anyway to win them back. And so, Jesus, I'll make a deal with you. I'll just give them to you. You can have them. I'll just give them to you. Just one condition. You need to bow down and worship me. Now, last theological question for you here. Why does Satan say that he can give all the kingdoms of the world and all the peoples of the world to Jesus? What's going on here? Well, see, after Adam and Eve sinned, God was still in control. God was still on his throne. But what the scripture teaches us is that God gave Satan temporary rule and reign over the world. And that's why over and over and over again in the Bible, Satan is referred to as the ruler of the world. You ever had a quiet time and came across that where the Bible called Satan the ruler of the world? And you thought, what do you mean he's the ruler of the world? I thought God was ruler of the world. Well, God is the ruler of the world, but after sin, God gave Satan this temporary time where he could wreak havoc through sin and temptation, temptation, temptation and sin, and God called him the ruler of the world. Now listen carefully, don't miss this. The whole point of Jesus coming to this planet was to exalt the name of God, and he was gonna exalt the name of God by destroying Satan's rule and his reign, and the plan that God enacted to do that was for Jesus to walk to the cross. The way that Satan's rule and reign was gonna be destroyed was through Jesus' death on the cross. The way that, he was, that God planned for Jesus to win us back was through the cross, so that when he died on the cross and he shed his blood, he would pay for our sins, Satan's rule would be destroyed over the world, and he would win us all back to God. Okay, so let's look at this verse one last time. Matthew 4, 8. And the devil took him to a very tall mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And Satan said to Jesus, all these I will give to you. But you need to fall down and worship me. Do you guys, are y'all starting to see what Satan is offering Jesus? You're beginning to see why this, why I said this was maybe the greatest temptation that Jesus ever faced in his entire life. Here's why. Because what Satan is offering Jesus is, is the chance for him not to go to the cross. 
Satan is saying to Jesus, Jesus, you don't need to die. You don't have to shed your blood. You don't have to suffer to win back all these people that you came for. Satan looks at him and says, I'll just give them to you. You can have them. No death, no crucifixion, no suffering, no cross. I'll just give them back to you. There's a brilliant plan. There's a brilliant temptation because Satan knows if he can just get Jesus to sin or if he can keep him from walking to the cross, he wins. Now, before I tell you what Jesus, how Jesus responded, have you ever thought about, like have you ever done a quiet time on this and ever thought about what would be the implications if Jesus actually took that offer? Theologians have talked about this for centuries. What would have happened if Jesus took the offer? Well, if Jesus would have accepted the offer, then I believe this with all my heart because I think this would have been the best thing Satan could have ever do to enact his plan. I think Satan would have stopped his reign of terror. Jesus accepts the offer. Satan gives us to Jesus. Satan stops his reign of terror. If Jesus accepts the offer, then, then Satan, he gives us back. He, he disappears. He calls off his demons. He, he quits tempting people to sin. And a lot of scholars think that if that would have happened, that Jesus takes the deal that the world would have immediately become this kind of paradise. I mean, think about what would, what would earth be like if, if Satan and his influence completely was removed? There'd be no war. There'd be no abortion. There'd be no poverty. There'd be no injustice. There'd be no racism. If Satan just disappears, calls off his demons, never tempts people to sin or disobey God. There'd be no human trafficking. There'd be no genocide. There'd be no hate. There'd be no malice. It's quite possible that if Satan completely removes his influence that most diseases would disappear. A lot of scholars think that would happen. That a lot of the diseases would, would simply disappear and people would begin to again live those long, crazy lives like they did in the Old Testament. And it sounds like a pretty good deal, Right? It sounds like a pretty good deal. All the bad stuff in the world goes away, and on top of that, Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross. So why in the world would Jesus say no to that? And here's the answer. Because Jesus knew that if he took the deal and he did not walk to the cross, that yes, the world might become this temporary kind of paradise, but church, without the cross, your sin would have never been paid for by Jesus. Yeah, maybe we live these crazy long lives, 90, 100, maybe 200, 300, maybe 969 years like Methuselah in the Old Testament in perfect bliss. But listen, the problem is, is that without the cross and without the resurrection, we would all still eventually die. And without the cross and the, without the resurrection, when we all eventually died, church, we would all still be in our sin. Without the cross, every single one of us would eventually die and would spend eternity in hell. And Satan knew that. And so Satan was willing to surrender a temporary victory to Jesus because as long as there was no cross, Satan knew that he would ultimately win. Now, Here's the thing, let me ask you a question here. Was that really a temptation for Jesus? Was that really a temptation for Jesus? Absolutely it was a temptation for Jesus. 
Scripture says that he was tempted in every way, and yet without sin, it was absolutely a temptation for Jesus, and we know that for a fact because of the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it was the night before the cross. It was the night before Jesus was going to enact God's plan to win his back and die. <clears throat> Jesus knew, hear this. Jesus knew that when he was nailed to the cross, that he would become our sin. The scripture says that, that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he that knew no sin, the person that had never sinned, it says that he became our sin so that we might become the righteous of God in him. So think about it. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, every rape, every murder, every war, every lustful thought, every moment of pride, think about the worst thing you've ever done in your life. You got it? The Bible tells us that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he became that sin. He didn't just carry it on his shoulders, as the song says. He became your sin, every one of them on the cross. And that's a really big deal, and here's why. Because up to that point on the cross, when he became your sin, the scripture teaches us that Jesus had been in a perfect relationship and fellowship with his heavenly father for all eternity past. They'd enjoyed a perfect, sinless relationship between the two of them. They'd never known the sting of sin, the shame of sin, the hurt of sin. They'd, they'd lived in this perfect relationship and at the moment that Jesus on the cross became our sin for the first time in all of eternity, he was separated from his heavenly father. And that's why the night before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus got down on his hands and his knees. And the scripture tells us that he literally started sweating blood. That he was so troubled, he was sweating blood. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that he was not sweating blood because of the nails of the cross. I'm convinced that he wasn't sweating blood because of the suffering of the torture, I'm convinced that he was sweating blood because he was gonna become our sin. And so three times in the garden when he's on his knees, he cries out and he asks the question, God, is there any other way? Father, is there any other way that we can win him back? Is there any other way that I can do this? And three times, God looks at his son and says, son, the cross is the only way that this can happen. And after that third time, Jesus prayed a prayer, and I want you to watch the prayer that Jesus prayed. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, watch what he says. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is facing the cross, he's facing becoming your sin, he's facing separation of his father, he's facing torture, and he prays the prayer, God, I don't want what I want. God, I want what you want. And he stood up, and he walked out of the garden, and he never wavered again. In church, he walked to the cross, 
where he was tortured and whipped and beaten and stripped naked and nails were driven into his hands and his feet. And when he had breathed his last, he cried out, it is finished. And in that moment, the power of Satan and his rule was, for, was forever destroyed. And in that moment, Jesus purchased with his blood people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation from all over the world. And on top of that, three days later, he rose from the dra- grave, conquering your sin and conquering your death forever. Hold on just a second. Amen, Matt. Sorry. Nobody amen me. I had to amen myself there. On the mountain of temptation in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said no to Satan and he said yes to the cross because church, Jesus didn't want to just get you back. Jesus wanted to get you perfectly and completely back. The reason that Jesus said no to Satan and he said yes to God is because he didn't want to just heal your earthly disease. Church, he wanted to heal your eternal disease. The reason that Jesus said no to what he wanted and he said yes to what God wanted is because he didn't want to come and delay your death. Church, he came to destroy your death. He wanted more than anything else for you to be his And for he to be yours, not just for a few years, but forever. And I want you guys to listen. I want you to hear what this one simple prayer that Jesus prayed. God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. I want want you to hear what it means for you today. What it means for you today is if you're here and you're not a believer, if there's never been a moment in your life where you've trust in Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and the payment of your sins. I pray that you would do that today. I pray that you would do that today. Because Jesus saying no to Satan and praying that prayer means that you have the opportunity today to say yes to the free gift of eternal life through his sacrifice. And that's great news. But listen, and I, what I'm about to say, I say to you in absolute love, not in harshness, not in condemnation, not in judgment. I say this in love. But if that's not what you want today, if that's not what you want, here's my advice to you. Live it up. Go all in for this world. Live life to the fullest. Draw all the pleasure out of this life that you possibly can draw all the pleasure from this earth that you possibly can because if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross as a payment for your sin, this world is as close to heaven as you're ever gonna get. But if you're here today and you are a believer, if you are a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, I've gotten good news because here's what this prayer that Jesus prayed means for you, believer. It means that all you have to do is hang on. It means that all you have to do is endure the pain of this world. Life is gonna get hard. Pain and suffering and persecution and disease, they are going to come, but when they come, keep walking, keep serving, keep worshiping, keep fighting, endure the junk of this world because believer, because Jesus prayed that prayer, this earth is as close to hell as you're ever gonna get. 
And that is really, really good news. And so point number two, because of this prayer, Jesus was able to walk in complete obedience to God, even to the point of going to the cross. And when he did, he won you back. And he won for you eternal life. Last thing, point number three. This prayer gave Jesus the power to pick up the cross. And this prayer will give you the power to pick up your cross. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said this is the defining characteristic of a Christ follower. It's someone that's willing to lay down his desires, lay down his wants, pick up God's desires, pick up God's wants, pick, pick up his cross and follow after Jesus. And I told you before, that's one of the most difficult prayers you'll ever pray, especially when your will doesn't line up with God's will. And I know that from personal experience. For a long time, Austin Stoners, I've told this story before. But for those of you that have never heard it, I, I was diagnosed with cancer in 2005. And it was one of those cancers that if it spreads to your lymph nodes, then you're done. There's nothing can help. No, chemo doesn't work. It's just a matter of time before it kills you. If when they cut it out, it hadn't yet spread to the lymph nodes, then usually it, it never comes back. And so after they removed the tumor, it was 1.9 centimeters. Most of the time they spread at about 1.9 or 2, so it was right on the edge. They went in and did a CAT scan. I met with the doctor. He came back and he said, well, here's the deal. He said, we went in and the lymph nodes around the tumor are swollen. And the blood marker that we're testing for that tumor in your blood is, is, is elevated. He said, one of two things is going on. <coughs> Either, you know, your lymph nodes are swollen because of the surgery and them cutting into you. That happens and the tumor marker is elevated because of the original tumor in your body and it'll go down, we'll test again in three months, it'll go down, or it's spread. And we'll test you in three months, and then we'll, we'll know for sure. And so here I was, young 30s, and I had a three-month period where I had no idea whether I was gonna live or I was gonna die. And that was one of the hardest three months of my entire life. I'd like to tell you that I, I walked that three months with a lot of grace and poise and but I'll just tell you guys, I was scared to death. And the reason I was scared more than anything else was my wife, I didn't want to widow her, and my three children. JD was, I think, five at the time, and Annie was three. Sammy had just been born. He was just growing a little mohawk, curly hair on his head. I was pretty, pretty I liked him a lot. And um, I couldn't imagine them growing up without a dad. And Annie was an interesting baby. When she was born, she wasn't really sure what she thought about me. She was always the kid, when she was real little, sort of look at me like, I'm not sure what I think about you, old man, you know. But then when she was about three, she started getting into me. And there was a point, right, it was during that three months that she was sitting on the bed with me and she took her hands and she put her hands around my face and she said, Daddy, I love you. And I was like, what do you want, girl? And I pulled out my wallet and I was like, you want, you want credit cards, you want cash, you want a pony, like whatever you want, you got it. But then, but then I walked back into another room and I just absolutely lost it because I could not imagine that girl growing up without a dad. Scared to death. 
at the end of the day, if God was going to take me home, that is not what I wanted. And listen, here's the thing. Our desires to be with our family, those are good desires. But sometimes our plans don't line up with God's plan. And it was a miserable three months. But the day finally came. I went to the cancer ward. It was the day of my test. I'm, I'm standing in, sitting in the cancer ward. All these people around me dying. <clears throat> I brought a Bible. I opened it up. I turned it to the cross. I started reading about the cross. And I should have looked this up before I preached today, but I didn't. But there was, it was a, a centurion or it was a Pharisee, but they were mocking Jesus and they were looking up at Jesus as he hung on the cross. And they said this, they said, Jesus, I thought you trusted God. I thought you trusted God. If you trust God, trust God to get you off the cross. And the Holy Spirit in that moment spoke to me as clearly as he's ever spoken to me in my entire life besides my salvation, besides my call to ministry, the Holy Spirit spoke as clear to me as I've ever heard him in my entire life. God's saying, Jesus, if you trusted God, trust him to get off the cross. The Holy Spirit said, Matt, sometimes trusting God means you don't get to get off the cross. Sometimes trusting God means you have to stay on the cross. Because, folks, Jesus was trusting God. Trusting God meant he stayed on the cross. Trusting God meant he shed his blood and he died. Trusting God and praying the prayer, God, I don't what I want, I want what you want, meant he walked to the cross. He didn't get to get off. And so I went home. Actually, I went to the office. Took the test, went to the office, closed my door, got on my knees, looked up at the sky. And for the first time in that three months, I prayed a prayer of surrender. I said, Lord, if you want to take me home, I trust you. I said, God, at the end of the day, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. And when I prayed that prayer, there was a peace. And there was a joy. And there was a contentment. And there was a power that I experienced in that moment when I surrendered to God's will that I had never experienced at all in those three months before when I didn't want what God wanted, I wanted what I wanted. Here's the thing, church, God healed me. God healed me. But I discovered that there is a peace and there's a power and there is a joy that you can experience, but it only happens on the other side of you picking up that cross. It's only to be found on the other side of that prayer. God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. And so today I want to end with the question, do you have a cross in your life God's been calling you to pick up? Maybe today you realize sitting in here that you need to pick up the cross of your salvation. That you've never trusted in Christ. He's your Lord and Savior. The good news, he already picked it up. You don't have to pick that one up. He did it for you. But maybe you have a cross of sexual purity that you need to pick up. Maybe it's a cross of a difficult marriage. Maybe it's a cross of following Jesus in a world that doesn't want to follow Jesus. What cross is God calling you to pick up? Here's the thing. Crosses hurt. Crosses are painful. Crosses mean suffering. 
Crosses sometimes mean death, but what Jesus Christ discovered and what I discovered is that there is a joy and there is a peace and there is a Satan-defeating power that can only be found on the other side of that cross. And just like Jesus, the only way you will ever pick that thing up is when you pray that prayer. God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. It's a bold prayer. It's a bold prayer. It's a scary prayer, but it's the most life-giving prayer that you will ever pray. And so today we're here, we're celebrating the cross. We're celebrating the empty tomb. And as you stand here today, remembering the empty tomb, I want you to do something. Because we're going to worship here in a second. As you stand here in a minute and you worship, remembering the empty tomb, I want you to first do something. I want you to remember the mountain of temptation. And I want you to remember the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said no to Satan and yes to God and he walked to the cross and he bought you back. And when you remember that and you look back down at that empty tomb, I promise you something, it will produce in you worship. And not just the worship like the person that's standing at the foot of a grave, but it will produce in you worship like a person that's standing at the foot of an empty grave. Let's don't worship today like people standing at the foot of a tomb. Let's worship like a people standing at the foot of an empty tomb because he is alive. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, just do business with the Lord today. If you're a believer, take a moment just to think about that moment on the top of that mountain, Satan says, I'll give them all back to you. And Jesus said, Satan, be gone. For the scripture says that we're to worship the Lord and worship him only. Think about the garden. Where Jesus was on his hands and knees, sweating blood to become your sin. Think about the prayer that he prayed. God, not my will, but your will be done. And what that means for you today, that your death was destroyed 2,000 years ago, that your sin was cast as far as the east is from the west. You bear it no more. If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, just in the best way you know how to do that today. Just tell him you want to trade your sin for his righteousness. And the Lord will do it. He'll make you his forever. Father, we just stand in awe today that you chose to walk to the cross instead of taking the easy way out. How in the world could we respond but giving you our all and singing today at the top of our lungs like a people standing at the tomb of a God who is alive. Lord, we love you and we praise you and it's an honor today to celebrate you on this Easter Sunday morning. It's in the name of Christ that we pray, amen. Amen, church, let's stand together.